You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, October 8th, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined shortly by our managing editor in the UK, Roger Hurst. But first, with the stories of the day, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ed. Well, we saw markets open up today until airline stocks briefly dipped after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that there won't be standalone aid for airline carriers without a larger stimulus relief bill. The Dow briefly inched higher after turning negative midday. You know, this comes against the backdrop of fiscal stimulus negotiations being put off the table, now being put back on the table briefly. Let's tick through the last five days. Saturday, President Trump says they need a new stimulus deal. Tuesday, President Trump calls off the talks, then demands vote. Wednesday, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi begin airline aid talks. Thursday, President Trump says broader talks are back on and could include a new round of $1,200 stimulus checks. You know, the president is also not open to doing a virtual debate um, as he's recovering from COVID-19. It seems like the markets are getting more comfortable with a potentially Democratic White House. But, you know, we see the economy still losing momentum, and this is a result of no stimulus, uh, no additional stimulus right now. Just look at the new jobless claims numbers out today. The labor market remains weak. Another 840,000 Americans filed for unemployment claims last week. This is higher than the 820,000 that was expected. These numbers just aren't coming down fast enough, as Ed points out in his credit write-down newsletter today. And, you know, the historical context here is that they still remain relatively high. If you look at the insured unemployment rate here, let's pull it up. It's ticking down based on the roll-off of the number of people collecting traditional unemployment benefits. It's at 7.5%, which is down a full percentage point from just about two weeks ago. But you know, as we've seen in the past, the insured unemployment rate doesn't directly correlate with the U3 unemployment rate. If we look back to May, June 2009, the insured unemployment rate peaked at 5%, but the U3 unemployment rate Um, It it continued to rise up until October 2009. The bottom line is that there are a lot of moving parts. You know, overall job loss remains elevated enough that it could be a drag on consumption, on GDP growth as well. I don't really anticipate rehiring that much given this wave of bankruptcies we're seeing and further coronavirus restrictions as the weather gets a little cooler and we head into the fall and the winter. So it's also really going to get worse without fiscal support too. So if there's no fiscal stimulus, we could see a monetary policy offset to try and sustain economic momentum. There are reports out this morning that Federal Reserve officials stressed flexibility in the U.S. Central Bank's policy to push up inflation. They said there is unconditional commitment to keeping interest rates low regardless of economic conditions. Also, a quick programming note. Investment strategist Lynn Alden, she'll be answering questions about the impact of fiscal policy on different asset classes in the exchange tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. 
We've posted a link to her exchange in the description below so you can start getting your questions in there as soon as possible. Thanks so much. And on that note, back to you, Ed. Thanks, Haley. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Roger, welcome back to the Daily Briefing. Hi, Ed. How's it going? Good. Um, you know, I saw that markets are up in uh, in Europe. They closed up. Uh, things are looking good these days. Yeah, we're still, I mean, I, we're still in that recovery mode, aren't we? We talked about those um, the key levels on, uh, on the S&P, the 50% and the 62%. And we've been bouncing around just north of that 50%. I don't think we've quite touched the 62 yet. And in Europe, it's the same thing. We started to break down and we're just bouncing back. So we're in that dangerous no man's land. You know, it's it's we could find that these levels still hold on the upside uh, and therefore we're still in that sort of rollover potential territory for, for the next month or so. Um, but as with you know the rallies off um, the March lows, it's it's an unknown quantity. These are the levels that would normally have historically been significant resistance. But as we've seen in the time of QE many, many times, these just get steamrolled now. So you've got to watch them. There's still good points. Um, I'm thinking 62% on the S&P, so slightly above where we are now. It's still a good point to think about putting some shorts out, but with very, very tight stops, because we are also talking about potentially more fiscal and potentially more monetary coming in the not too distant future. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about uh, policy and I want to talk about uh, currencies and treasuries, because, you know, we were uh, as we were prepping for this earlier, you were talking about those markets. I think, um, you, you know, rather than even lead with what's going on in uh, Europe and the ECB, maybe we can start even with what's happening in the U.S. because uh, of the, the size of the Treasury market and uh, how important the dollar is and so forth. Uh, we had the minutes from the Fed yesterday. I think I sent you an FT article about that, talking about how uh 10-year rates backed up on the back of uh, what the Fed had to say. W what's going on with the steepening of the yield curve? Can you uh, break down how you're thinking about that? Yeah, so I think, personally, I think it's um, the anticipation of the fiscal. So, you know, we had a bit of a move on the back of Trump pushing back on the fiscal, but then saying, well, I'll give everyone a $1,200 check. And I think there's also been this element where people said, oh, look, markets are starting to price in Biden. And I don't think they are because Volatility is still pretty much where it's been for the last, um, last few weeks on, on the November VIX. What I think is happening is just this expectation that both sides, and this is the one trade which I think um, we can look through the election for, is that both sides are going to do probably more monetary and more fiscal. And they'll need to certainly do more fiscal, given that it feels like the rebound, um, what you could call the organic rebound, is coming towards an end and it now needs a fiscal boost. Now, what you've also got is the Fed that says we're on hold till 2023. And I think a brilliant part of the statement was, I think they said that and if things get worse, it could be long, and if things get better, it could be shorter, which is absolutely no use to anyone. But the point is that they are theoretically on hold till 2023. And that really locks the front end, which is three months, two years have hardly moved, five-year yields a little bit, 10 years a bit more, 30-year a bit more. So you've had a steepening of the curve. And particularly when you look at things like the two-year, 10-year space, the two-year, 30-year space, you can see that uptick. So it's it's sort of fiscal. Um, you could say it's sort of inflation, but inflation expectations had been driven up by the Fed buying tips already. This is just an absolute break up in nominal yields at that back end, which then begs the question, what is the market's tolerance for higher yields? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that that is the question. And, uh, you know, to think about this, uh, you know, we can bring in uh, yield curve control here because basically if you're pinned at, at, at zero at the low end until 2023 and uh, anything positive in terms of fiscal stimulus comes into play, then you're, you're definitely going to see rates back up and you're going to see some steepening. But then the Fed's told us, you know, wait a minute, we have we have weapons against that. Not only does the Fed have weapons against it, the market can only tolerate a certain amount of, of steepening before it starts to think, OK, that's bad for the economy. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's, it's sort of um, the, the multi, well, it's a trillion dollar question, isn't it? Which is where do yields become destabilized and where do they tighten on financial conditions? Because remember, at the end of 2018, uh, we got yields, the 10-year yield got to 3.25. and was a sort of pin that burst, um, not the bubble, but certainly burst, burst the, the equity activity. Um, then, then exacerbated by the Fed raising rates on uh, at, at the uh, December meeting. So where is it that we go to now? It's not going to be 3.25. On the 10-year, could it be 1.5? Well, that's 70-odd basis points above here. Um, but there's going to be a point where I think markets will be uncomfortable with those high yields. Now, the Fed have said, we're not going to do yield curve control in the same way that they said we're not going to do more QE. Obviously, yield curve control is, you know, QE is where you buy a certain number of bonds theoretically every month. Yield curve control is where you target a specific yield level. And if these yields start to move aggressively, they will come in because they don't want these yields. Given the levels of debt, everybody, governments, households um, and businesses have all increased their debt levels in general um, over this period, particularly corporates and the governments. You know, you can't have high yield levels in that sort of environment unless they're reflecting true underlying growth. And this, in some ways, is, is the big question. You hear people say we're going to get reflation. In my book, reflation is where you get economic activity picking up, so economic growth, your proper general um, growth. But we'll probably just get inflation, so maybe high commodity prices, but not true growth. And that's a danger. That's a stagflationary environment. They don't want that. And so they're giving out these mixed messages, which is they want people to believe inflation is coming. Um, they've been pushing the tips market um, higher and buying a lot of that up. But at the same time, they don't want yields to get out of hand and kind of be the pin that pricks the market again. So... It's a really difficult balancing act. So far, they're sort of saying, let's say fair, we're, we're backing off. But I think that you're not going to see that many more basis points before they'll start thinking again and maybe saying, OK, hang on a minute. This won't be good for financial conditions on ultimately the market. And so basically, if the Fed is doing a good job, then that means that the market is saying, OK, in the future, uh, after 2022, uh, rates will be higher therefore we'll send rates higher. But if they're doing too good a job there, then it actually ends up being a negative thing. Say they get to 1.25% on the 10 year, and then they have to start thinking, okay, wait a minute, we have to do something about this. I mean, this, this is the, the hellhole of the world that we're in now, isn't it? Which is that um, you know, there's this sort of thing where you say, oh, we've had growth, but there's what I always think of as organic growth, which is growth where it's innovation, it's productivity. You don't need debt to drive that growth. So maybe one unit of debt or no unit of debt create one unit of GDP growth. And it might just be population growth, but hopefully productivity. But then we've been in this sort of scenario where four units of debt have created one unit of GDP growth. Well, that's leverage. Now, some people would say, no, it's not. You can look at it. But it's really leverage. In every other scenario, that's leverage. It's not true growth. You're, using, you're getting a bad return for the amount of debt you're taking on. But that's been the framework for the last 15, 20 years. And as a result, we keep on seeing that 30-year trend in the 10-year yield has been downward. And each time it gets to the top of that range, it becomes a problem. 
or that range now, I'd have to look at the chart. My guess is it's sort of you know, 1.25, 1.5, something like that. So it becomes really tricky. It's that balancing act. You still want the market to feel or believe there's growth coming. So you sort of want inflation expectations higher. But you don't want yields higher because that then bursts the bubble. So it's, it's very difficult. You know, uh, it, it begs the question of what's happening across the pond, because obviously the dollar is the uh, is the toggle here uh, between the um, U.S. markets and other markets. If the, the Fed is is talking this way, what does the Bank of Japan do? What does uh, the ECB do? What does the Bank of England do? It's that great world again where and it's that, you know, the balancing act between the two forces, because everybody wants their currency weaker. So Europe wants its currency weaker, Japan wants its currency weaker, but everybody wants the dollar weaker, and you can't have both. Um, because obviously the dollar weaker is generally a loosening again of financial conditions. So you want low yields, you want a weaker dollar. That is normally good for reflation for general risk assets globally. Problem is, and you've seen now that the, and a lot of people are now saying that probably by December, the ECB will have to think of something because they've shot their fiscal bolt with that um, big package they announced in July. And, you know, when Draghi left, he's saying you've got to do more fiscal. Well, that's just happened. So they don't want the euro getting much stronger because I think it was the HICP um, inflation for Germany got to minus 0.4. So as U.S. inflation is starting to pick up, Europe's starting to decline. And that's a big problem. So Europe's now struggling with the notion that we're not going to get inflation. So euro is suddenly looking a little bit like a yen and Swiss franc deflationary currency. So I think the ECB will fight that. I think the Bank of Japan will. I mean, I, I look at the chart there and 105 has been a big level, um, but I think 100 is the one where they'll probably start properly squealing. And remember, you know, they got a little bit of inflation when we got to dollar yen 125, but back down towards 100 and the whole inflation outlook is reversed. So the US gets its inflation at the expense of Europe and Japan. How long do you think Europe and Japan are going to roll over and have their bellies tickled by that? I think they're going to come out and do something about it. You know, uh, I think I saw um, a, a piece uh, talking about the Swiss in particular, how uh, there is the potential that they could be considered a currency manipulator by the U.S. Treasury. But, you know, uh, they don't care. I mean, they have a special situation. Uh, what do you think about that whole uh, dynamic, the political implications there? I, I think that's I think it's fair because they've had this absolute avalanche of euros come towards them, particularly since Draghi did under whatever it takes, not whatever it takes, since Draghi did the doubling down um, of QE. Well, actually, for Europe, it was really the opening of QE in 2014. It was Japan that doubled down. And everyone just basically was giving euros um, into, into Switzerland. And remember, they tried to protect that. I think it was in January of 2015. They pulled off, I think it was 120, and we saw a 20% move in the Swiss franc versus the euro and a significant move versus the dollar. I mean, this was, this was a phenomenal move in a major currency pair. But the problem is they still got to manage the fact that they do still have that inflow. And what they do with that inflow is they go and buy loads of Apple shares and stuff like that. But I think people, you know, the, the big hedge fund. I think the problem for Switzerland is, I, th or I think people appreciate it's a small country and there's not much that they can do. And they would have chronic deflation if they didn't do that. They've got that anyway. So I think there's a little bit of that element in there. and. Most other places are not doing direct intervention. It's this great game that everyone's playing, which you know, the Japanese used to directly intervene. They got slapped down. So now everyone does QE. So you, you basically print loads of your own currency rather than try and manipulate the market itself. But it's, it's still the same game. I think Switzerland will be given a, a free pass for a bit longer yet. Yeah. And, you know, in all of this, you haven't mentioned the UK where you are now. 
they seem to be in a different place than those other three, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Swiss National Bank and the ECB. Well, our currency has been generally going down because of all the uncertainty. So, you know, the UK, it's uncertainty breeds uncertainty. And when you don't have, without this certainty, you lose your foreign direct investment. And there's been that slowing down of flows into the UK. So the, the sterling, sterling has been on naturally on the back foot. We dropped from 150 down to, you know, 120. And we're in that sort of 125, 130 bracket versus the dollar now. There's still the uncertainty. Um, there's been some good noises with regard to Brexit being, when I say good noises, uh, that sounds bad. There have been some noises about a deal being done. There are also some noises that, that they'll never get the deal done by the 15th of October, whether that date gets pushed to be ratified by the end of the year. Um, I've said before, I think it was two weeks ago, that um, but the UK having its own currency sovereignty is good. In a right. world it's been slowing down, actually, we should get to parity versus the dollar. It will create inflation for the UK. But um, just like you know, the, both the Republicans and the Democrats, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and the Conservatives overall said, we're going to do a hell of a lot more fiscal than the Conservatives have ever done before. And that was before COVID. And now because of COVID, they're going to have to do more. So it's the currency adjustment, you know, this whole idea of, you know, sound as a pound. If the, if the dollar pound got to parity, suddenly there's a lot of UK assets that look very attractive to foreign investors once more. Yes, it will create inflation because obviously currency weak, we will import more inflation, but it should be a benefit. And that's what the Eurozone doesn't have, is it doesn't have um, those natural stabilizers. So it will be interesting where in some ways, you know, maybe we fall out of, of Europe, currency will move, but currency will balance that out pretty quickly. And in some ways you'll see the thing move and then the money will come in and even the house prices might get a bid, particularly in London again, from that sort of thing. And so 130, it sounds like you're thinking that that is a significant move. There's not a whole lot of upside there. So I, the way I've been pricing um, sterling is that we've seen over the last few years. So when we had the big move, the big break in 2016, we hit, I think, 118. Actually, there's an intraday print at 112. It doesn't show up on Bloomberg. It was at one or two houses. You got 112 intraday. But basically, 120 was always the clean break Brexit. And 135 was give or take was a deal done Brexit. So that's always been sort of the, the, the framework that I've used. And so at the moment, we're seeing sterling pricing closer to a done deal Brexit. But I think that, as I again mentioned before, is I think it's just a bit of fatigue because most people in the UK will be sitting here thinking, OK, given we've had a lockdown, we might go into another lockdown. Is any form of Brexit going to be worse than what everybody's experiencing right now? And probably not. And you can see this in terms of news. It was. You know, the dullest thing for the last four years being in the UK was every front page was about Brexit. And it was boring, quite frankly. Now it's always been about COVID. It's been relegated to, you know, second, third, fourth pages. And the investment community has other bigger things to play with. You've seen a little bit of a pricing in because sterling volatility has moved higher than a lot of other G10 currency volatilities over the last two or three weeks. But nothing exceptional. So, you know, I think Brexit fatigue is, is certainly there. You, you know, uh, there are two things that uh, came to mind when you were talking about that. One is, you know, it, just in general, we're talking about currencies a lot. And it reminds me that in the in the past, you were talking about if you want to trade volatility, if you want to see volatility, it's going to be in the currencies going forward, not in other places. Has that changed? That's going to be my first question, especially given the steepening of the yield curve. Um, and then the second is about DXY. Since we were just talking about levels of 130, what about dollar, uh, the dollar levels? Because it seems like we've been in this trading range. I mean, you know, there's, uh, there's not a whole lot of movement, 
we're at the bottom of this this trading range in the 93 94 chord or maybe up to 95 where is that headed you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I think of the dollar, there's still the very, very clearest um, differences between the DXY, which is 57% euro, and the rest of it is basically sterling, yen, and Swissy, um, and the EM currency, so the JP Morgan Emerging Market Currency Index. Nearly all the move down in the dollar was really the euro getting stronger, pulling up all those other European currencies, plus a bit of strength in things like the Aussie dollar. Um, whereas emerging market currencies haven't really moved since July of this year. So you have this massive divergence. So people have said, dollar's weak. No, euro's strong in a few other G10 currencies. Dollar's been relatively strong versus some of the emerging market currencies and has been getting stronger versus some of the basket cases. And the euro really put on its strength since there's that agreement in July, or it looked like we're getting the agreement on the big package. So Europe was rewarded for unity. So ironically, Europe was rewarded for unity and a big fiscal package, whereas always we're talking about big fiscal package to put pressure downwards on your currency. In Europe, it worked the other way around. So I think that's firstly key. Now, FX volatility hasn't really moved overall, but I think that my feeling on the dollar is, let's say I'm, I'm directionally not biased. I am slightly to the upside, but let's say I wasn't. I still think that the moves on the dollar to the downside will be a grind because of what we we're talking about before. Euro goes down, if the dollar goes down, the European policymakers and Japanese policymakers will start getting a bit agitated and they'll react. So it goes down a bit, moves back a bit. There's always an asymmetric risk to the upside with the dollar because you've got that potential risk off type of scenario where the whole world kind of realizes an insolvency risk and a cash flow risk in a world that's still dollar denominated cash flow. That's where the dollar upside is. is a, that's why the dollar is asymmetric risk to the upside, even if you think that the dollar should continue to move lower. In terms of volatility, um, you've got, as I say, FX vol is above where it was pre-COVID, but it's been flatlining, particularly G10X, the UK. And you can even see this with the Turkish lira, where the Turkish lira making new lows versus the dollar, but one month Turkey vol has hardly moved. So it's not really a currency story. You're right in the bond market, with this move higher in the yield curves, the, the 1030s, sorry, the 210s and 230s, we have seen the move index move significantly higher off an all-time low. And I'm watching that because I think if the bond market starts to get volatile, the volatility comes in with the steepening of the curve, that will eventually move its way into other assets. The equity markets are still difficult to analyze because you've still got that huge bump, the hump in the VIX to November and the November election. Um, so it goes back to, you know, when we look at people say, are the, are, the, are the markets pricing in a Biden victory? I don't think they are. I think that all they're doing is the pricing in fiscal comes from both sides. The VIX is still showing 32 in November. That's not coming down. So I don't think there's anything that we can pull out of that. Um, but I'm watching that bond vol because that bond vol could start to become pernicious and creep into other parts of the asset uh, metric ma matrix. Yeah, and when you talk about uh, creeping into the asset matrix, I'm thinking about uh, real interest rates and gold. Um, you know, obviously, it's different if, if it's inflation uh, versus if it's not inflation, but if real yields actually start to rise, then uh, gold and silver don't look as well. Where do you see that? 
Yeah, you've seen a little bit of that because this move from the highs in precious metals has come with real yields moving up again. And it's, you know, for the last 10 years, real yields have been a perfect mirror or gold has been a perfect mirror image of real yields. Um, and so when real yields are falling, gold's normally going up. So real yields, which is the difference effective between nominal yields minus inflation is your real yield. Um, that's been pushing high mainly because these nominal yields have been moving up. Inflation expectations, these are inflation break evens, have been going, you know, gangbusters for the last few months. They've actually stopped uh, their momentum to the upside slow down. So this move in real yields is actually a nominal yield story in the 10 year and the 30 year space. I, again, think that these are buying opportunities in gold because I think that there's only, as we discussed at the very beginning, there is only limited upside in yields before, you know, the policymakers and the markets start to squeal in the same way that, you know, euro, you know, the dollar euro move will lead to ECB starting to squeal. There's all these um, balancing mechanisms at the moment, which is one of the reasons why overall, even prior to COVID, volatility was remarkably um, low. It's because every time something moves out of whack, one of the other central banks has to whack it back into line. Um, and that I think will still happen. So these are probably gold buying opportunities. If you're in the silver game, you know, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta take some big gyrations there because it's high beta. Um, but I still see these as buying opportunities because fiscal is coming, monetary is coming, and it's probably going to come in much bigger size than we've ever thought of before. Excellent. Uh, you know, always good to talk to you, Roger. Very, a very good update uh, this week. Really appreciate it. No problem. It's all good speeches as well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.